1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Derek Gregoire. Derek is the co-owner of SHP Financial, an independent RA based in Plymouth, Massachusetts, that oversees nearly 1.2 billion of total assets for more than 1,200 clients. What's unique about Derek, though, is how he and his firm have centralized the execution of multiple marketing strategies to increase the amount of prospective client leads the firm provides to its advisors, so they in turn can concentrate more on developing client relationships and not need to worry about chasing prospects. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Derek has built a combination of radio programming, short interview style television ads, seminars, and digital marketing to bring in prospects. How Derek and his firm have developed a simplified three meeting sales process that aims to avoid overwhelming prospects with choices and just focuses on whether they want to work together. And how Derek's decision to centralize marketing has ultimately freed up resources to maintain a larger service staff to ensure a high-touch personal experience for clients. We also talk about how Derek and his partners realized that after getting close to burnout, that it takes more than just advisors to scale and grow a successful advisory firm. Why at one point, Derek and his partners decided they had to spend a whole year doing less to get the firm back on track for long-term growth. And how Derek learned firsthand why having a good internal culture at his firm is what really helps advisors develop better and deeper client relationships. And be certain to listen to the end, where Derek shares his philosophy on concentrating on the smaller details now to help with the bigger picture later. Why Derek believes it's so important to be authentic and to have confidence in oneself, especially early in an advisory career. And how Derek's long-term goal is not simply to have success, but to achieve significance by pouring into others. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Derek Gregoire. Welcome, Derek Gregoire, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to have you on today and and talk about some of the dynamics of of growing and scaling advisory firms in, I guess, at least to me, what is a, a... a different model than how we did it in the past, and and I think much more representative of, of where it's going in the future. So when I when I look at the the industry in the past, and kind of the, the the traditional way that we brought in advisors was was pretty straightforward. Like welcome to the industry. Here's a phone and a phone book and a cubicle. Like start calling. We lived a cold calling. World. Uh, if you're in certain firms, you might even do cold knocking instead of cold calling. If you don't like the cold knocking and calling, at least you can do a little bit more relationshipy things, like uh, uh, go go out and network and and join your uh, join your your uh, local business councils. But it was all driven around the fact that ever, everybody had to kind of eat, eat what they could kill and hunt their own food. And there's this shift to me that's starting to occur in the industry. And, and I know your your firm has been living this. and We'll, we'll get to talk a lot more about it where. That model begins to shift and you say, hey, we've reached a certain size as a firm where I think we can actually drive a lot of the marketing and and marketing at the end of the day is kind of the function of prospecting. It's the make the phone ring part. We think we can drive the prospecting as a firm. And if we drive the prospecting as a firm, we might even be able to do it more cost effectively. And then we don't need to hire a bunch of advisors who go out there and hunt and eat what they kill or have potentially have a very high failure and attrition rate, which just means a bunch of continuous hiring for us. If we can make the marketing happen as a firm, we just sort of just in air quotes, We just need to teach them how to take prospects that come in and and convert them to clients and then service them. But we can skip that whole messy prospecting step that I think is still probably the single greatest cause of advisor attrition is how brutally hard it is to, to prospect and find people to work with in the first place. And so just this model of what does it look like when you begin to centralize the marketing of the firm, I think is a fascinating transition for advisory businesses overall and just really excited to hear how that's come. About in your firm and and what that looks like today?
2: Yeah, Michael, it's funny. We you know it's it's a point that we hit where we came to the realization where it's like we can't do this by ourselves. I have two partners, Matt Peck and Keith Ellis, and it's like we can't continue. Like we we had gotten to a cool point that you know we looking back at our early selves, like we never thought we'd hit this inflection point. Where we have we've been able to do some marketing and we have so many appointments and leads that it's like how do we, we can't take care of these ourselves. Right. And that's where um, we started thinking of like, you know, how do we grow the business where it's bigger than just us? Right. How do we make this, how do we change our identity where we can do something that's so much more than just, you know, three people and and some employees, but really grow something that would be exciting for an advisor that maybe struggles with prospecting or maybe, you know, put it this way. If I look back at myself, In 2003, when we started the firm, if the option of what we have for our advisors now was available, I don't think I would have ever started this business. You know what I mean? Um, Because that's the hardest part. You all know when you wake up and you have no one to see and you have to grind at, you know, networking meetings and events and family and friends. I mean, that's a that's a hard business cycle. And and, um, when I we always we tell we talk to our advisors sometimes. I mean, I'm 42 and. I talk to him like I'm 82. Sometimes it's like, you know, you know, back in the day, we used to like, it's like walking to the school uphill <laughs> in the snow, both ways in <laughs> the snow. <laughs> it's like, did you realize like what you have? Like, I, you know, you walk into um, a week and you have, you know, 10 appointments on your calendar with, you know, the asset size, the goals, you know what I mean? So it's just a different animal um, than what I grew up in back in 2003, you know, or even before that at Banker's Life, you know, knocking on doors and cold calling. And yeah, there's a lot of funny stories back then. But yeah, that's the kind of model we've tried to build out um, in the infrastructure to have, you know, have it so that the, these advisors can take on, learn the process of taking on the client and then, you know, serving the client with a team, but not having to, they don't do any prospecting on their own.
1: So talk to us a little bit more about the this just the structure of the firm. Like, I think we're gonna dive in more into what this marketing process looks like and how you built it. But just to get us started, tell us about the advisory firm overall like, s- size of the firm and number of the people and how it's structured.
2: Yes, yeah, so there's about uh, 41 people um, in terms of like team members. On the staff, and that's divided up between um, operations, um, you know, s- selling advisors, or we call senior advisors, um, service and planning advisors that you know behind the scenes, um, marketing and business development. And I'm probably missing one or two, but it's really it's we started where like a, a fee an AUM uh, assets under management model um, that most of our businesses functions in that light with an insurance arm, right? We, we still ha- have, we grew up in the insurance background. So insurance and annuities are still part of what we do, um, but the majority is on the assets under management side. So from a team structure standpoint, I think if you look at our total um, number of like how much we're handling in-house of total assets. You'd probably say 40, 41 people, employees is a lot, right? And and I'd have to agree with you on the surface, but I think what's different, Michael, about why we have the amount of staff that we do is you have to remember even, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, we had like 40 or $50 million that we were dealing with. You know what I mean? And so the growth, we're trying to keep up with the growth of the firm, but we're also trying to never lose the touch, the personal touch and the service in the planning that we're providing to the clients, which ultimately leads to, you know, retention referrals and so forth. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of outline, but really this to answer your question about specific advisors, there's really, you have myself, Keith and Matt, who um, don't really take on many clients anymore, kind of service a few of our select clients from, from, you know, years past, some of our uh, top clients. And then we have um, four selling producing advisors who that's all they do is sit with um, prospects and some of their clients and their goal, that's where the growth is essentially coming from. The majority, majority of it's coming from them specifically taking on the clients that we're generating through our marketing efforts.
1: And just to round out kind of overall perspective of the firm, what's the, what's the client base and, and asset base for the firm?
2: I think there's about 1,200 uh, clients and about 1.2% billion of total assets and breaking that down is about 900 million of assets under management and about 300 million of uh, annuities um, that we've done along over the years. And, you know, some of those clients are obviously the core relationships are less than the 1300. You know, some of them, we might have, you know, set up something 15 years ago and they, you know, they don't, there's not a lot of You know, core planning needed there, but you know, um, I'd say probably three or four hundred core core clients, but we have a lot more than that. You know, it's it's a it's an issue that we're working on uh, currently. Um, but that's basically the uh, amount of assets. But if you think of like the one point, let's say we handle one point two billion, there a lot of the hiring and growth and so forth has happened over the past um, three to five years. So two hundred fifty five million of that of new assets were gathered in 2021, you know, so you can kind of, you know, multiply that out. We weren't that, it didn't, we weren't doing the same type of business we are now 10 years ago.
1: So let's dive a little bit more in just into that kind of marketing growth engine. So you had said you you do have, for senior advisors, whose whose role is to to sell and close business, so sit with prospects and and uh, show them what the firm does and convince them that they would want to work with the firm, yeah. uh, but but they don't prospect. Uh, that you bring, you have a marketing and business development team who's bringing the folks in. And then ultimately, uh, that's who the selling advisors, that's who the senior advisors sit across from. Correct. So so help us understand further what this marketing and business development team looks like and what, what you're doing there that ultimately made two, $255 million of, uh, of new assets appear last year. All
2: right, so that's basically when it comes from marketing standpoint, it's a pretty even split um, from of that two fifty five. Usually, about a third's going to come from marketing, a third's going to come from referrals, and a third's going to come from you know clients inheriting money or retiring and you know windfalls, business sales, and really. So the marketing engine essentially, if you're taking care of your clients, doing what you're saying you're going to do, it's going to take care of the other two as well because it's going to lead to referrals. And those new clients are eventually going to most likely have some sort of a windfall where they're going to be doing more business down the road. Right.
1: So there's kind of a multiplier effect, like every 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 new client you bring in could actually be worth you know, t- two or three clients worth of flows in the long run, because at some point. The client you brought in is going to refer someone and the client you brought in is going to have a, a inheritance or liquidity event or something at some point down the distant road. And so when you mix all of that together, as, as long as the the new, new clients are coming in, the downstream multiplier effects you're kind of assuming will, will, will come and cascade along as well.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. So the way we look at it as we look at an, an ROI over like two years, every single marketing avenue, which we'll go into a few of them in a, in a second here. Every marketing avenue that we test and try and that we commit to, that's going to have some sort of return on investment. And so we track that over two years. And so if we if the two-year ROI on that marketing funnel is positive, like it might be one and a half to one or two to one, you know, sometimes four or five to one. Um, but if it's positive remotely, we know that that's just one third of, the, of our business cycle, if you will. I'm not sure the right term, but like we know that... There's three different distinct areas that drive business. There's the marketing, there's the referrals, and there's the client opportunities. And so by bringing, by doing the marketing on the front end, getting those new clients in the door, taking care of them, which we have a whole system in place to, uh, for doing that and getting referrals, we know we're going to get X amount of referrals. We know we're going to get a certain amount of business down the road. And so that's the key metric that we're, we, we have a sheet that our leadership team looks at every quarter. And there's it's, a, it's almost like the print is getting small on the sheet because there's so many things we're doing that we're trying to keep it on one page. What it essentially tracks is it looks at every marketing avenue, right? So for example, it looks at television, right? And it says, okay, we spent $240,000 in television last year. And with that uh, money, we, we brought in $35 million of new business, right? And The ROI on that is two to one or whatever the number is. And so we track that for every single avenue. So just to kind of give you a rundown, you know, looking back a few years ago, we were like a seminar machine. Like we did a lot of seminars and I found that to be, it works well for folks. and And I know people that do marketing. We still do some, but it's really, you know, out of our 255 new assets that were brought on last year, it wasn't a great, it was maybe 13, 14 million. It wasn't like a huge home run. um, But it's one of the things that we still do. We'll do like one or two a month, um, you know, let clients bring friends, but it's really something just to keep our name out there in the different areas. Um, Just the process, the time away at night, it's just not my favorite thing to generate if you think of the percentage of our overall business, it's like 4% and it's 30 something nights out, you know, mm. or 20 something nights out a year. It's just, you know, it's not my favorite thing. Um, and so seminars are one thing. TV, obviously that's another um, avenue we started in the last couple of years, which has been a pretty cool endeavor. Um, radio. And what's become huge in the last probably one to two years is also the digital marketing, right? The digital side I can tell you the, how we use it, but I couldn't tell you like the, <laughs> the programming behind it. I'm not your guy for that for sure. Um, but I can tell you kind of the, the funnel that we've had created for us. And it's just kind of evolved in, into multiple marketing funnels. And when we look at every single thing we do, um, the, the ROI is about four to one. You know that's the ROI across the board. Um, some are much higher, some are much lower, but that's the average for 2021
1: so, ROI. So just talk to us a moment. Like, how, how do you actually measure that ROI? Like, what's what, what's what's in the numerator and denominator of this <laughs> of this fraction to to say the ROI was four to one?
2: Yeah. So it's and I will say that's kind of we do some client referral events. And that, and that ROI is so staggering that it kind of sways it up. Most of our events, most of our ROI is like two to three to one, but the referral events really bring that number up. But when we, What we measure is really simply how much do you spend? So if, if you're doing radio, as an example, how much does that radio show cost you to air every week in you know, any team members that you're hired to help you with that or whatever the case may be? What does that cost your firm out of pocket? And then simply at the end of every year, obviously we track. We do track this quarterly, but at the end of every year, we look back and, and say, okay, what was the total revenue brought in? And obviously, if it's something on the insurance side, that's a you know one-time thing, or depending, or you can take it depending if it was trail-based, or if it's on the AUM side, it's we we assume that we're getting paid on that for two years. And again, that's a very conservative assumption. You know, like most firms, our retention ratio is probably 98, 99 percent. Um, so they should be there for 10, 15 years or longer. But we always want to take the conservative, like, like, hey, we know if we're if over two years we're break even or profitable, right? And we know that we're probably going to get referrals and future business down the road. We know that that's a successful um, avenue that we want to keep, kind of pulling that. You know, if you can go to Vegas and pull that lever and put a dollar in and get three or four dollars back, you know what I mean? That's a lever as a, from a business standpoint. We, we want to keep on pulling. And so we track every single I think it's so important to a lot of people just you know wing it like we'll try this we'll try that, but they don't have the data to really know if what they're trying is working, you know what I mean so it's important to track your numbers you know for sure that's a big 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 thing for
1: us so if I think about this and in- Sort of an, an uh, like actual client terms so if if I if like I do a marketing thing I get a million dollar client just to make the math right nice and round and easy yep uh I'm charging a one percent fee so it's ten thousand dollars of annual revenue yep. so if you get a if you get a million dollar client you're essentially gonna tag that as that's a twenty thousand dollar revenue value because you're you you look at what you would get paid over two years correct and so from your I guess so from your system like if you end out with the four to one that means it it cost me $5,000 of marketing expenses to get that million-dollar client with $20,000 of revenue over two years. That's how I would get to a, a four-to-one ratio.
2: You're exactly right. Yep. Simple. Try to keep it simple as simple as we can. So we have a simple spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet that tracks every marketing avenue, every single possible thing from like... You know, the little things from every single, not even radio, but if we do multiple stations, it'll track each station and we just know what we spend and we know we track exactly what's coming back to us. And then, like you said, you just simple drag the box down once you have the numerator divided by the divisor. I think that's the right, frame. my yep. math teacher would be proud if that's right. Um, then you drag it down and there's, you know, there's the ROI for each endeavor that we're that we're working on.
1: And If I heard you correctly there as you were describing it, you, when you think about what are my costs to do this, I, I think you had said it's not only the, the – I guess I'll call it like the hard costs, right? the TV ad spend, the radio spot spend, but that the team members that support your marketing initiatives are, are part of this cost equation as well
2: yeah, so for example, we do some we do we use a couple a couple of companies to help us on the digital side. and they they have a co- they have like a flat retainer cost because they're helping us with mark you know the, some of the marketing and you know they're helping us create some funnels and do different things. But then they have a cost for the actual ads they're running, right? So if you just ran the ad cost for the digital side of what it costs to put something on Facebook, that wouldn't tell the whole story because that right. you're also paying that firm a consulting fee to help you know come up with the campaigns, build the yep. campaign. You know what I mean? So that's and, and if we're doing a workshop and there's three employees that have to go and set up and you know you almost have you have to inca- account for that in your marketing budget because that's. That, that's part of the deal, right? That's part of manpower that has to go to these events and, and set up and so forth.
1: So do you include all of your internal staff costs? I mean, I'm assuming there's some folks on the team that have marketing responsibilities, if only to manage all of the different programs and channels and, and, and the stuff that's going on. So do you, do you include your internal marketing team staff costs as well? That's a good question. Right now,
2: mostly we do that just for the seminars because their salary is like covering a bunch of multitude of all different things. So it's really, but when they actually physically have to go to a seminar, a workshop, and in, in, in they're working there, we factor in like, hey, we have to pay them extra, extra money because that's kind of overtime. Right. right. We factor that into the overall um, ROI of that campaign.
1: Okay. But otherwise, sort of a, a base level of marketing staff you're not, it sounds like you're not necessarily allocating to calculate your ROI number. That's just sort of the implied, like we're, you know, the overhead of the firm is going to have someone that has to do this no matter what. So we're not, we're not allocating that to the incremental marketing cost for the incremental marketing result.
2: Yeah, we probably could, Michael. It's like one of those things you like, You can micromanage so much and try to get to this exact fine number. (laughs)
1: uh, Yo, someone who's listening to this is like, oh my gosh, my partner and I have been arguing for like seven months about whether (laughs) to put the person's, whether to put our marketing director's salary in the cost return number or not. So, just had to ask, like, where do you guys fall on that line? So. Uh, so it sounds like you're uh, just the incremental cost it takes to do a marketing thing relative to the incremental revenue that it brought in. Whatever that staff infrastructure it is that you just need to be a firm that has some kind of marketing stuff is just part of the overhead of the firm for
2: you. Exactly, and, and, and this is coming from a you know uh, type you know pretty type one OCD type person that I am that likes to have everything under control and know every single detail that if I'm letting that slide, then, you know, it, it should be okay. I, like, I try to look, you know, you want to know every single number and you want to know your business yeah, yeah. inside and out and, You know, even it was a hard, even for me at, you know, five employees or seven employees, I could have a pretty good idea what was going on. But it was an amazing lesson for me in growth just to know that you can't, you have to trust other people to to do their job or for anything. You can't, you you don't have to get to the bottom line of every single detail in your business um, or you're going to, for me, I started driving myself nuts and and over the years as now as you know, with 40 people, I know I can't do it. So it's not even as much of a, of a stress level anymore, because I know it's almost an impossible task to get to the, the details that I probably want to get to. But uh, you know, you do as much as you possibly can without within reason, without driving yourself to a level of all right, this is this is going to bother me, and I'm going to lose sleep over these details. It's Not worth it.
1: And I'm just curious, where did the like the two to one ROI as a goal come from?
2: I think it started out because a lot of firms would, would sometimes have higher numbers, right? Like sometimes they'd have three or four in, on seminars. They just have much better results than us. And how we got, to, it wasn't like we said, like we want to be at two to one, or we just thought that was a good benchmark. If you look at all the marketing we've done over the years, um, we've had some fall to one and a half to one, and we, and we dropped it, right? We dropped it because the amount of time it took to put into that particular endeavor it was profitable. And yes, it would lead to referrals, but we feel like if we could put our time into something else and get two, three, or four to one and and use up the same amount of time, it was just a better use of our our overall time. So it wasn't like we said we need to get to two to one. We just did the math that if we can put a dollar in with our profit margins um, as a company in what we're operating at now and get $2 back on that particular person, on that particular family from a from a, from a ROI standpoint we know that we're going to we're going to increase that substantially with our other efforts so that was more of like a just a benchmark almost like a, if we can hit 2 to 1 or more we're in great shape probably okay even less but just more of a benchmark
1: when it it sounds like to some extent you just got to this point of we're doing all these things the average basically is coming out to be 2 to 1 or a little a little north of that well once you pull out client referral events at least so if If we know on average, we're doing things that come out at about two to one anyways, like why would you do things below average when you could just redirect your dollars to the things that are above average?
2: Correct. In example, Michael, we had a a radio show on a a, a station in Boston and it was profitable for for years. Um, I mean, if I go back to 2008, what was the year? Remember the year you could do a Roth conversion and then like count it over, take the tax liability over two years?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of stints of of putting two year averaging provisions in place, but yeah, we we did one of those coming out of the uh, the financial crisis. We got to do another two year averaging.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So I remember when very unpolished, very young, you know, doing a radio show on a station in two thousand eight or nine whatever that year was and we did one on a white paper on roth conversions and i'm legitimately we got over 300 calls like it was we didn't know what to do with them (laughs) we we didn't know how, you know but we had we the phone was ringing the people were calling and towards the last couple years of doing the show we would put like an you know all kinds of prep run the show it was an am radio station right it was huge in boston but you know AM radio station. I'm not sure if that's the place you want to be right now. Um, and over, what happened is we would do it, put all this time in and do a show. And then you'd get, you know, one call and it was, you know, it was costing a lot of money, a lot of our time. And the ROI was like one and a half to one. And then where that led into um, one of my good friends in in our mastermind group, Anthony had led us to looking at TV and not just TV, but how you structure the commercial and, and all the things that go into it and that doing a TV commercial, I can show up to a studio record five or six at a time once every six months, and then I'm good. And there's not the hour-long prep every every week. There's not, you know, so that from a, from a timing standpoint, we all know time's the finite resource. We felt like it was better to put time the same amount of money, but a lot less time into TV that you could use in three to, three to five minute clips at a time. And you could use the same one over and over again um, than to hum- come up with a brand new radio station, uh, every single a radio uh, show every single week. And the ROI was better. So that's an example of like just trying to run the business more efficiently and a little bit more smart in terms of like, how you're spending your time and resources to get
1: a better ROI. Well, and I'm I'm struck as well, just thinking about this this two to one benchmark, cause you calculated it as two to one across two years worth of revenue, that also functionally, that just means uh if you're hitting a two to one revenue, your first year revenue is your marketing costs. Like if if I yeah. if it's twenty thousand dollar two year revenue for a client into two to one ratio, that means it costs me ten thousand dollars to get them, which essentially means like a million dollar client that's going to pay me ten thousand dollars a year, and I spent ten thousand dollars in order to get them.
2: That's awesome. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yep.
1: Yeah, which I guess just also makes it appealing because it it literally means it's cash flowing. I, I mean, obviously you got other expenses to. To handle clients coming on board and and such, so uh, uh, cost of a first year client is is more than just the the marketing cost to get them on board. But there is something kind of neatly cash flowing about. I guess if if you calculate your marketing ROI on a one year on a on a first year revenue, it's it's essentially a one to one ratio. It's if we can spend ten thousand dollars to get ten thousand dollars of revenue, we we do
2: that. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And, and like you said, the client should. We've been doing, you know, we remember we started in the insurance background, but didn't really didn't get going on the AUM side till about 13, 14, 2013, 2014. And it's it's been a huge transition for us going from like one way to this other way. And the clients have been with us since 2014. We lose maybe one or two a year as a firm you know what I mean so it's, we, don't, yeah. we don't lose a lot so we know that when we're conservatively picking those numbers we're doing everything against us so ROI is probably a lot better over time I know it is but we you know I feel like that we always try to operate even when we're doing for our clients so you want to project project an e-money conservatively you want to project for us internally. Let's project that these clients are only with us for two years. Are we going to be okay? Does it still make sense from that marketing avenue? You know what I mean. So it's very, very conservative, but that's just how we like to to operate.
1: Well, I I would imagine then that's um, for someone that started out deeper on the annuity side, that has to be a strange shift for you when you look at at marketing spends and marketing ROIs, because I, if you do this from a classic annuity perspective, where you've got, I don't know, take like the. The quintessential uh, uh, annuity contract of old, like seven-year surrender charge, seven percent upfront commission. Uh, you know that 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 million-dollar client pays a seventy-thousand-dollar upfront commission, and so like same marketing spend, Like <laughs> if, you know, if it takes the same marketing spend to get a million-dollar client, your your ROI in the annuity world was seven to one. Your ROI in the AUM world is two to one. <laughs> Yes. Same client, same assets. Now, obviously, on the AUM side, hopefully, they're going to stick around a lot longer than just two years. We tend to have much longer average client, 10 years. Uh, uh, and and so there there's all there's more long term upside than that right obviously if they if they stay 7 years in the long run you'll actually be the same on both of these Correct. but uh from a from a marketing ROI spend like it does look very different from just a pure cash flow perspective when the AUM the AUM environment $10,000 spend $10,000 revenue the annuity environment's $10,000 spend $70,000 revenue <laughs> That's which a, means you could take the other 60 and plow it back into marketing to get more, more clients, which for anyone who's listening, like, this is why you see a lot of marketing come out of the annuity side of the business. Correct. Because it, it cash flows really, really well.
2: That and that, you know, To be honest with you, that was our first 10 years of business, and, which was not really a business. It was a sales organization. You know what I mean? And that's, that's where we came from that background.
1: So, talk to us a little bit more about the channels. Now, you sure. I think it ultimately kind of highlighted four that you're putting resources towards at this point: the uh, television, radio, seminars, and digital. Yes. So, 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 talk to us a little bit more about each of these. And just we can start on the television, end because you 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 shared a little bit there already. But like, what are you what are you doing in television <laughs> marketing? I, I don't. I don't feel like we see that a lot in advisor world.
2: That's that's an uh, excellent question because we started, like we tried this by the way, like six, seven years ago and we did like a 30 minute show and without much of a plan, and it was horrendous. Like uh, the ROI, I think, was zero, <laughs> negative. Whatever you spend, we lost. Um, so we, we basically were very, you know, hesitant to get back into it. And one of my good friends in Chicago had a business and he's a master marketer. He's in our mastermind group. He's just one of my best friends in general. And he had kind of, you know, said, hey, have you tried TV? And I was like, nope, I'm not doing that again. Just doesn't work. He's like, well, have you tried? You know, what did you? What was your format? And I said, well, it was like a thirty-minute show, you know, on the different areas of our process and in you know the, the kind of the five-step income investments, taxes, healthcare, legacy, CFP board standard planning, and you know, we didn't really have it; just didn't get results. And he said, well, what time were you on? And what we, you know, what station were you on? And, and so after we dug a little bit deeper. What we what he was doing was more three to five minute informational, um, like like almost like a host interviewing him or, or in this case myself on just like a topic. Right. And so we we, we changed the format from um, doing, you know, 30 minutes to doing three minute commercials uh, in Chicago. He actually does five minute commercials in Massachusetts on some of the stations that were on predominantly CBS they limit three minutes is the most you can do. Like you can't buy more than three minutes at a time.
1: So we, we and these literally run as commercials, like three exactly. minute commercial break.
2: Yeah. So we have, a, you know, we have at times where we try to get like the eight fifty seven to 9. AM break between the local news and good morning America. I could get in the, I might be getting those shows wrong, but you know, we try, I know there's some timing that's involved when, when we're on the show. We've, we've tested different times. It's so it's always, it's almost always Saturday and Sunday and it's usually between we tried 6 to 7 a.m. most of them between 7 and 9 a.m. so we'll do like usually we'll do one or two saturday and one or two sunday all pre-recorded all different so most of them most of them it's more of like a mm-hmm. a topic of like hey you know hey Derek nice thanks for joining us and you know the concept of you know a lot of people don't really pay attention to taxes in their financial plan right so we'll do like a conversation about Deficit taxes. You know, are there opportunities for you know things like Roth conversions? Is your team, is your financial planning team, talking about this? Um, If not, we can schedule a financial tax review, and and that's you know that's one of the calls to action. So they'll call for a tax review. Um, Another one we'll do is we'll say take a quiz, right? So we send them to our quiz shpquiz.com. Please don't take it if you're listening. What it does is it goes that it starts another funnel. So instead of them like saying, hey, Derek, we're going to raise our hand. One of the commercials is raise your hand, come in for a meeting, right? We might get a few, we'll get a few calls every time you run that. The other commercial is raise your hand to go to a website to either watch a webinar that we recorded or to do a, It's we call it a quiz funnel. And essentially a quiz funnel is um, a good friend of mine, Brad Johnson and his digital company, and I know a friend of yours as well created this amazing funnel where it's like a 10-step question of like retirement planning and if you're prepared type thing. And at the end of the funnel, it basically, it, it, depending on how you answer the questions, it's going to point to either what's your main weak point, either income, investments, taxes, healthcare, or estate planning. And then it's going to kick out a quick report back to you on, hey, this is your biggest weak spot. We see like in, in tax planning, here's some things you might want to think about. Very generic. It just talks about like tax loss harvesting, Roth conversions. You know, different ways to reduce taxes, and it's very simple. But it's like if you want more to, to learn about other gaps you might be missing, give us a call. So you think of like that's that's kind of answering the question on the digital funnel in the TV um, marketing. But the, the the TV marketing either feeds an appointment or feeds if we if we if we do an advertisement on sending them to the quiz, which is an online platform that might get 35, 40 people, but obviously it's not as warm because they just might want to take the quiz and call it a day. Um, right. But out of those people, a lot of those people will end up raising their hand afterwards or they'll go, they'll go into our drip list, right? So where they're getting nurtured in a, in a different way from a different team of ours on the digital side. There's like TV either filters into a webinar slash quiz funnel or it filters to an appointment.
1: And, and and the point of the quiz, like just is in case you weren't ready to just set an appointment already, we're we're, we're simply giving you a, a different, slightly lower stakes way to engage with us. You just correct help us f- fill us in for quiz for those who just aren't aren't familiar with quiz funnels and like why why you do quiz funnels.
2: We always equate like when you're doing a TV show and saying come to meet me and come set up a meeting on your life savings. That's like asking, you know, to marry someone on their first date, you know. Um, we'll still get people that will come in all the time. That's a big part of our funnel. But it's a lot easier asked to say, hey, you know, if you're concerned about this type of planning we just talked about, go to our website. And here's the URL to go there. And it, it'll, you'll answer some questions. And in essence, for the advisor standpoint, it's, it's, a, it's a pre-built out, you know. We ten, I think it's ten to twelve questions that very simple, like not in depth, like you know, are you retired? One, you know, it's basically a series of questions that tries to lead you down a path of what your biggest gap might be, like what your you know, it answer, it addresses some of your concerns through this quiz process, and then at the end of the day, um, that kicks out a report to that prospect. But remember, with that whole process we're also capturing their name their email address and you know maybe 3 of those people will raise their hand and try to go further and then we have a whole campaign after for the next series of weeks that's then like dripping on them. Hey, we saw you went to the quiz. Did you get the rest of what you were looking right. for? And then, you know, that that sets up a whole other funnel um, as well. So that's really just a different way to... You're not going to get as many... It's not going to be a red hot lead for your team, but it's going to be a prospect that you can nurture. So we have we have a whole other company that really their main job is to help nurture our prospects along with the SHP brand, not not in the sales way.
1: I guess just the uh, the other note I'd give for anyone who's... Who's listening and curious uh, uh about this because I I come across quiz funnels world myself uh, um a few years ago there's a a book out there called ask like ask a question ask by Ryan leveque uh, yeah. that's, who,
2: that's, that's who set this up for us
1: yeah who's built this whole like quiz quiz funnel framework so I, for those who are listening this is episode 278 so if you go to slash 278. Uh, we'll, we'll have links out for Brad Johnson and for uh, Ryan Levesque's Ask uh, if, if you want to check that out further.
2: Yeah, that's it's funny. You said that's Brad and Ryan literally worked on us to build there. our quiz.
1: That's So, so there, there you that, go. That's the guy. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> So uh, and then I guess from the marketing ROI perspective you know where they you know where they came from because the TV like the TV commercials have particular places to go that are specific to the TV commercial.
2: Correct. Yeah, we know we know if they come from the TV or if they're a TV to quiz funnel or if they're uh, like a Facebook ad to quiz funnel or how, I'm not sure. I know there's multiple ways and I I, of how they, you know, Brad and his team generates in Ryan, how they get people to go to the quiz and take the quiz, but it's either through TV to quiz, which we track one way that's, that would be considered under TV. Or if it's, if it's from like a Facebook campaign or some sort of ad, Google ad type thing, then that's tracked under digital.
1: And now help us understand just what these what these three minute commercials are because I just I'll admit my my gut response is like commercial pretty like just the word pretty pretty much makes me start to want to uh to tune out we're, we're you know in, the, in a in a digital world a lot of us have already gotten used to like skipping through commercials or just watching Uh, Netflix and other platforms that don't have commercials to the extent we have to deal with commercials. You know, the, the traditional commercial was, you know, 15 seconds of highly produced stuff. And you're talking like three to five minute commercials. So what are these commercials that (laughs) I guess is a, what are you doing? And B like, what are you doing that has people not just tune out to the, I don't know, maybe this is just me channeling personally, but like I don't think a lot of enthusiasm around like three to five minute commercial. I barely tolerate fifteen second commercials now. So yes. what are the commercials?
2: So I'm this. I'm the same way. I'm like, who wants to sit through a commercial? And it's very. It's it's set up in a in a way that it almost looks like a, a news interview. If that makes sense, like it looks like a like it's myself on one side and in a really good news anchor on the other side. I do a lot of the marketing and rainmaking, and I do the commercials. But I have some good scripts that are written out from our marketing team and some of our resources that are set up ahead of time. But it's really like trying to hit the the listeners or the viewers over the head right away with like, "Hey, do you?" I I wish I could give a better example, but it's almost like, "Do you realize we're taxed?" You know, right now taxes are as low as they've been for X amount of time, and you know, we have this huge deficit, whatever it is, to kind of. Get people to listen, like, or do you know how much taxes you'll have to pay in your IRA, 401k and retirement plans? You know, or do you have a or do you have a retirement plan, 401k IRA? And I do you know what the tax liability is in that plan, right? So it's almost like an initial the news anchor hits them pretty good with something like that. And then we get into the kind of the background of like who we are, what we do, why it's important, why a lot of people don't plan for taxes at least the, you know very few people do tax full true tax planning and so that's really the the essence of like a back and forth informational style not not a commercial of like you know me walking down the road holding a client's hand if you know it's not that type right. of a commercial it's more of like a, a quick interview and and if you can grab the attention right away because it's kind of going into a break and it's coming into a big program usually, then um, there are people because I, I see the list every day of who calls on the weekends and there are people who will raise their hands and, and do that. But I know what you're saying. It's like it sounds like who wants to sit through a commercial in this day and age of DVR and I don't I don't do that. When I watch <laughs> anything, I tape everything and, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. There's no such thing as a commercial, so I get you, but it does, it does work. It does pull for us, and that's why you test different things, and, yeah. and a lot of times you learn from testing where we tried the 30-minute show and figured, hey, that's a real show. People are going to tune in, and people you know, change the channel in five minutes because they were bored or you know it's too long, so it's, it's for us, that kind of commercial three minutes has worked really well, and to be honest with you, the one- to two-minute commercials has not worked well because you really can't get into a – you can't make it like an interview because it's so fast.
1: Right so this this lets you get to a mini interview I guess basically they're prompting you with some questions around the kinds of tax and retirement issues that that crop up for folks so you know RMDs are going to hit you hard someday and you've got this big embedded liability in your retirement plan that you're going to have to deal with and uh and, and just surfacing those sorts of issues because at the end of the day, there are prospective retirees who are dealing with it and anxious about it. So if you really just sort of remind them they have this problem and prompt them that you have a solution, and you do that in front of enough of them, someone's going to be like, "Oh yeah, I've totally been meaning to deal with this. I know that's an issue. I like, I guess I'll reach out to them because it's right in front of me at the exact moment I was planning to deal with this."
2: I've gotten even emails from someone like, "I'm sick of seeing your face on the weekends," right? Like you know, like you know, some some old cranky guy who just like wants to rip me apart. And I I used to get upset and now I just, I found it very humorous. Like you went out of your way to, to like send the team an email of how annoying my face is to you and how I bought my shirt at Walmart or something. You know, it's just the funniest comments, right?
1: <laughs> at least it means they're watching.
2: <laughs> um, and I think the the end of the day, you're right, Michael is like, if you're listening, if you're watching, And you have an IRA and you have no idea, like you're concerned about where taxes are in general and you don't know down the road of we're basically working with an entity that could change it on us so we literally your business partner could take more of that down the road. And it's like, geez, I wanna learn more about this. So I wanna go take this quiz or I'm gonna call. And trust me, I'm sure thousands and thousands of people see it every weekend and, you know, five raise their hand or for the quiz, yeah. thirty-five raise their hand. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like everyone's well, but, diving on the phone.
1: Well, that's the thing to me around mediums like television, just because the reach is so large. I mean, there there's I don't know, I think there's like five million people in the in the Boston metropolitan area. So, you know, if 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 only twenty percent of them watch TV on Saturday mornings, it's still a million people. And you know, if if ninety percent of them are just completely tuning you out, it's still a hundred thousand people. And if uh, you know, one in a thousand think that quiz is like maybe interesting and worth checking out. Like that could still be a hundred leads. Yes, yeah, like, it's- a- which is actually a really big number. Like just when you when you start with a huge market like that, you know, you 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 just get to this world of like. Yeah. You, you literally can have 99.99% of people completely tune out what you're doing and it would still be a very, very material number of leads.
2: You're right. And it's so, it's pretty cool to us. I love like what I like doing is we do mobile, we use mobile assistant for our um, advisors and they'll basically dictate their meetings um, into this. And, And so, I'll see like the first, second, third. And then eventually when they become a client, it's like, you know, Joe and Mary signed on, um, their assets are at X, Y, Z. We're going to be moving them over to Fidelity and, and it's yeah. uh 3.3 million. Right. And then I'll go back into our CRM and be like, mm. Hmm, that was a TV quiz funnel from, you know, December 1st of 2021. You know, it's like, it's cool. Like that person randomly saw this quiz and it went to this whole process and now they're signing on as three and a half million dollar clients. You know, I love looking at that. Just looking yeah. back on like a, you know, when did that person raise their hand and, and what did that and sometimes you can even yeah. listen to the call if they when they call the call center of like what that call went. So I'm I'm always intrigued by like that process.
1: And so last thing on television, I want to talk about some of the other the other mediums. So just what is this cost? I mean buying like three minute long commercials on uh you know on on a on a sizable boston station like what is this cost
2: this is where we've been testing and trying different areas but if you do between 6 and 9 a.m. as long as it's not 857 to 9 right if it's i think it's like 850 or 900 dollars per spot is that that's the total cost once a month we'll do the 857 to 9 lead in and that's like 5 grand you know what i mean so it's like it's almost because that's where you get the most listeners the most viewers okay. um,
1: so the so- the tv folks have got a pretty good handle on who's watching when and you you do pay for the eyeballs. Like if you Correct. want to spend less, pick a time slot that doesn't have as many eyeballs. If you want the time slot with the eyeballs, it will cost you.
2: Exactly. And we started out just doing all the big eyeball spots, if you will. And and then over time, um, we realized we like to do that every like once a month, we'll do a eight fifty seven to nine AM spot. But we get pretty good results. Not the same, but even if it's eight nineteen or seven twenty one or you know um, but the, the big lead into the big nine o'clock national show is going to be your best your best bet.
1: So and I guess part of that is just the the branding repetition effect as well that well I guess you know, to, to show up at 857. Once a month means you're still staying fresh for the people who watch regularly, and then maybe you'll get some of them in the earlier slots. If you grab the 857 slot every single time indefinitely, like maybe you'll get a little more repetition, but you're also going to get a lot more harassing emails from Bob, who's tired of seeing your <laughs> face in your shirts kind of thing because you're a good combination, yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> of like, Yes, I, I love this, and I can't wait to see you, and I hate you.
1: Um, so you know. So if I just think about that through the month then literally we're like maybe we buy one five thousand dollar spot and then we buy a couple of the less than a thousand dollar spots. there's four weeks through the through the month so like I'm 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 seven eight thousand dollars a month into TV ad spends for these three minute spots.
2: Yeah, we used to like we were doing two Saturday, two Sunday. That's what we've been mostly doing. So that's four. I figure about four thousand a week. I, the whole, and then you add the big one at the end of the month. I'd say about twenty close to closer to twenty thousand a month is this month. Okay. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we're doing two Saturday, two Sunday. You know, some are eight fifty, nine hundreds. Uh, they range in that depending on the slot. Sometimes it's eight fifty or nine. And then the the big one at the end of the month. I don't know. Ex- I want to say it's around five thousand. I could be a okay. little bit off. Um, but it adds up to about twenty thousand a month. I would say as an average cost.
1: And do you do this just like one station, the big station? Do you have to like diversify yourself across across a bunch of stations? Because I don't know the TV world at all.
2: Yeah, we're doing right now. We're doing it with um, we're doing one station in terms of like um, CBS in Boston. But we're trying to br- we are going to branch out over time into other other stations. But right now, that's what we've been doing.
1: Okay. And I, I'm just curious, how, how long did it take before results started coming? I mean, just did did people like start hitting your page and your quiz the first time it went out because you had a relevant thing and, and got some people on issue they were anxious about? Or did you have to do this like a couple of months of getting your name out there and doing it before anybody was willing to engage with them?
2: No, I would say that was that's one of the avenues that it should it hits pretty early. It's not like they have to see, you know, it's not one of those things you have to see it 25 times. I mean, some people do, but we got results pretty early on. Um, the first couple of spots we ran, we were already getting pretty good results. So yeah, so I don't, uh, it's not one of those ones you have to build up and wait for.
1: Um, because the whole point is you're hitting such a wide audience. Correct. So, so that's television. So talk to us now about radio.
2: We went off radio and it's kind of becoming a lower end of the funnel because it wasn't working and we got off. And we only have one station now. And how we do radio now is more of a branding, and it's a way to talk to our clients because a lot of clients of ours came from radio over the years, and they would say, you know, where'd you go? How come you're off the station? And and, and we we realized that just being on. And having our clients listen to us was almost like a touch point during our journey of like, they felt like they had heard us, even though we hadn't met with them. So it was almost like right. another, a good feeling for them to hear us there. So instead of having to do all the production, everything that we're, we're putting into, that we were putting into the radio shows for many, many years. In the last year, what we do now is we do our podcast, which is like a 30 minute, you know, more specific on like a topic um, in our business. And then we just do, we, we go in and record the intro and the outro for a radio, a little call to action. And then we just put that on there. The the old days of getting two, 300 calls on a radio station. I mean, it's a very small part of our business because it kind of faded away over the years.
1: Meaning just people don't listen to radio as much as they used to. And so you literally don't find it converts the same way that it used to
2: exactly it might be something we end up even dropping in the next year to be honest you know we 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 kind of dropped it went back on with like a a little different flair because we're already doing the podcast anyways which is obviously as as you know is a more friendly medium in this day and age and gaining traction so we're already doing a podcast so we said why don't we just use a, you know the podcast as part of the radio show
1: and and so to some understanding correctly you're anchored around a podcast at this point and so your radio your radio broadcast is literally just we already have a uh, we already have a podcast we're gonna send the radio station our broad, our podcast and just let them air that so it's not even it's not even live they're just running the podcast tape it,
2: it, they're running the podcast but then internally we know the podcast is 40 minutes and we know we need to have 50 minutes of content so we'll do a five minute introduction on what we're talking about in the podcast and then we'll do a five minute. Hey, based on the what you learned in the podcast, which could have been on like super backdoor Roth conversions, I'm just let I'm me give you an example.
1: And and what does radio cost you? Like, how do you price radio and, and price radio relative to television?
2: Radio is roughly for the station we're on. We have an hour show on Saturday morning. It's about a hundred thousand a year. Um, we were spending about three hundred fifty four hundred thousand a year just about three years ago um, on multiple channels, and that was a huge huge ROI for us back. Like that in the day that slowly has deteriorated, you know what I mean. So that's right now we spend about a hundred thousand dollars towards radio,
1: and it, and it's moved that fast. Just that you were spending three hundred grand plus just three or four years ago, and now you're finding that it's you've dialed the spend down that much.
2: Yeah, we just kept, every time we track the numbers, like I said, that station used to be uh, five to one, then four to one, then eventually it was like one and a half to one. It's like all right, we're we're gonna. Huh we we talked about it for a couple of years and eventually we pulled the plug and just kept on one sta- kept ourselves on one main station
1: so i guess I, I like i'm just curious as you track these and think about these right I, I think about it relative to media at large i feel like there's a lot of discussion of all sorts of traditional media under siege like people don't read newspapers anymore they go online they don't listen to radio they go, they do podcasts they don't watch tv with commercials cuz they just netflix it <laughs> uh but I am struck. Like you're, you're, you're happily spending on television and driving ROI, but you have dial back radio because that actually seems to be slipping faster for you. Uh, how do you think about all this evolution of how consumers consume content and evolution of media as you're looking at, I mean, I'll, I'll call them air quotes, traditional media channels. Yeah. On the one hand, a lot of us seem to be talking about moving away from it. On the other hand, you are still driving results that you can clearly <laughs> measure so they're working some more than others how do you think about the evolution of of media and marketing channels
2: well i think on from a radio standpoint i mean the you know like i said in 2008 9 we would generate hundreds of calls right and i wish we had the infrastructure we have now back then internally um, but we didn't know how to process it. We didn't do a good job of processing it. But just look at the writing on the wall for you know AM radio. Like, have you ever met someone under fifty that listens to AM radio? <laughs> radio. You know what I mean. And that's that was our main driver. And even yeah. you know, it's just, it's just I guess if,
1: you see- if your market is, is prospective retirees and retirees, like if only people over fifty listen to AM radio, like
2: it's I guess so.
1: <laughs> but even them, for even, a while, at least.
2: Yeah, even those clients. You're right. But even those, even those demographics are starting to go away from they're starting to do mm. uh, more you know podcasts and you know xm and all these other stations I'm, I'm not even privy to a lot of the things that are that people listen to now but I know it's not the, just the results in general what would also happen to that that you can't forget is that we used to be one of the only advisors in the area on radio and then once it became successful there was like 25 on the radio mm. like one show after another so that was part of the problem as well Um, but I see TV, we've even explored with some of our, um, partners, like, you know, we use a company called Lone Beacon as one of our partners. And we've talked about like, is there a different way to advertise and other, obviously they don't have advertisements, but is there like a a different medium through streaming that is going to be a way that we're advertising in 10 years from now, right? And right now we're going to keep pulling that lever on the TV. If we can get a dollar and put a dollar in and get, you know, $3 back or $2 back, but we, we're always going to be looking at the change. And I do think, you know, TV, I think, is going to be a slower transition than radio because, you know, people have trouble kind of cutting those cutting those cords. Is that the right word? Yeah. You know, cutting the cords on, you know, a lot of people still have those cable boxes and watch cable TV. And even myself, I use Roku, but I watch, you know, I still watch TV, um, you know, through my Comcast, you know, network. And I still, you know, occasionally we will be watching a game and there'll be a commercial on. So, I think the TV will be a little bit of a slower transition, in my opinion, um, from a marketing medium than what radio is.
1: So then the the other end of this is the digital marketing world. I know you said that you are spending more time in digital marketing as well. So so talk to us about what digital marketing looks like for your firm.
2: Yeah, so digital marketing is really two avenues. So what I was saying before with with Brad Johnson and his company and, and Ryan Levesque to help us with a quiz funnel, um, Brad's also creating, we're in the process of doing a webinar funnel, which is the same exact process, except where you where, we're creating a 20 minute mini webinar on the SHP retirement roadmap, which is the five, you know, five worlds of planning and a quick to the point bullet points on each area. That's what we're creating now. We have a digital side of like advertising for new prospects, right? To build that list, if you will, build the list internally so we can continue to market to them down the road. And then we work with a company locally called Lone Beacon. And they're amazing at like, think of like the nurturing of our clients in our prospect list. So it's very, it's done in a way where it's, and and I'm probably not the best person to speak of this in our office, but from a high level standpoint, it's very nurturing. It's very brand oriented and it's not super salesy. So um, they're constantly like, just like our weekly market report to our clients, right? The the weekly things we're sending out to our clients, we're doing surveys every every year to our clients and how they generate the surveys to give us positive and negative feedback so we can improve. Um, and then they're also taking our prospect list of like thousands of names over the years of radio shows and, and TV commercials and quiz funnels and all these names that come to seminars, and that's a different nurturing campaign, so they're kind of gently nurturing that group of people, uh, that group of prospects that you know every few days someone will raise their hand, someone will raise their hand, and they have a cool system in place which almost tracks what your prospects are clicking on, what your prospects are doing. so it helps our new our business development team to like, hey, reach out, hey, we saw you checking out this or that um, and that that's a big part of our business as well is just gently nurturing our funnel our prospects.
1: So this whole process of doing ongoing email drip marketing, you guys aren't even driving it internally. You have a marketing agency. You have Lone Beacon as a marketing yep. agency that does that for you.
2: Correct. Exactly. They they work with uh, my partner, Keith is, is kind of head of marketing. And Michelle, our COO, kind of coordinates that with John and his team at Lone Beacon and Jamie, our internal uh, marketing, Jamie and Evan work internally and they're basically coordinating, um, like all these events. Like if we're doing a workshop, there's going to be, you know, some sort of a, uh, email campaign to drive people to that workshop. If we're doing, um, whatever the case is, it could be a charity event that our team is doing. They're going to gently come up with a little campaign to let our clients and prospects know. So they're a you know, 10, 15 person team that almost is like a, a, an arm of our marketing side.
1: Like they, they run
2: a ton of our marketing, but more on the uh, client cultivation and prospect nurturing um, more than anything.
1: So they're not necessarily... right. I'm thinking of this relative to things like TV and radio, which is just Like out there in the marketplace, finding prospects to make you make make them aware of you for the very first time. It sounds like your digital marketing end is less around that and more of this is what you do in the middle of like for everybody from a radio and TV spot who comes to the website but is not ready to hand over their life savings to schedule a sales meeting yet but you know is willing to sign up to do something and now you have an email address and you have to nurture them digital marketing for you is mostly what happens between those points of they showed up once because they became aware of us in radio or TV or something and when they're actually ready to meet with the salesperson to potentially hire the firm
2: correct yep that's exactly it there it's a it's a a lot of people forget they just want people to raise their hand but that person might have raised their hand and got busy in life and it might not be the right timing so that second part of the nurturing a lot of those people will eventually raise their hand but you have to be there at the right time when they're ready to raise their hand right when they're going through an event a retirement whatever the case may be and so you, you could, like just like you're doing TV broadcasting and you're going to thousands of people and it might hit 10 of them and say, I need to get this help. Well, the same thing, it comes to nurturing these this people who didn't end up moving forward. And then, you you know, out of these 10,000, uh, you know, people in our, in our drip list, there's 9,995 of them that look at it and delete it, you know, until, but then one time they say, you know what, I recognize this name. I've been getting this for a while. I've been hearing them this, this, you know, hearing them there and seeing them there on the, on different media outlets and not now, you know, I do have the ability, I got a, a buyout option at my firm and, and I can retire with a severance package and here's what the option is if I want to retire now and now I need to call someone and then we're in front of them. So then they are ready to raise their hand. And that, that's a huge part of just nurturing the database that you've created if you've done marketing over the years.
1: And what do you spend on this? Like how do you allocate dollars to this and what, what do you spend for you know, nurture all these leads that have come in?
2: Yeah. So we spend a, there's a consulting fee. I, I It's probably around a hundred thousand a year for their services is my guess. 60 okay. to a hundred thousand. That's like just all the retainer for everything they do. And then if they if they're doing any like campaigns for actual, like a marketing campaign, a Facebook campaign, then you pay, you know, that's a different, that's a separate campaign, which they also run at times as well. But the majority of what we pay them is just their, you know, consulting fee to be that, extension of SHP financial to do what they're supposed to do, you know, to help nurture our clients along in prospects.
1: And so, from a business perspective, how do you how do you think about and decide something like a, a potentially hundred thousand dollar consulting fee versus just hiring a full time like email marketing specialist and say like you're now a full time team member of SHP. Your job is to make these digital marketing funnels happen. I mean, I like I get it. One thing when it's, when it's it would cost us tens of thousands of dollars for a person and we can hire this consultant for just a couple thousand dollars to do a thing but you're you're at a level where you could hire a whole person to to be responsible for this so how do you think about why hire Lone Beacon versus hiring a full-time email marketing expert
2: we you know it's we actually went we've been back and forth on that years ago like do we hire someone and just pay a salary but the value of Lone Beacon is they only work in the financial space. So they know our business really well. And they have a full team of, of, it's like almost like having like a marketing team, as opposed to just access to one person. So if we're doing a specific event, they might be someone that's better to, to run that material or, or create that content in their firm, where if we're doing something different, that's more of a, hey, we're doing a charity event, they might refer us to someone else in the firm that's going to create that content. So they, that's, they. that's we feel like we're getting more bodies and more good, solid minds doing the marketing for us and helping us with the marketing as opposed to just hiring one person that might not have a financial background, that might not know our business as well. And, and that's that's we went back and forth on that years ago, but settled on... It was, it, we we're glad we did. It was a much better move for us to just hire them.
1: And then the last channel that you've talked about is, is seminars. So what's seminar marketing for you?
2: Seminar marketing is in a sense... We run some basic Facebook campaigns in mailers, like a mail house, if you will. And essentially, it's a good old-fashioned – there's nothing fancy with it where mailers go to the house. Uh, you know, we send out 10,000 mailers and you get 50 people to show up in a room that uh, – the difference with us is we pre-qualify everyone. So, we – you know, they have to have 500,000 plus. They have to – you know, we kind of go through a little process and, to pre-qualify them.
1: And how do you pre- – like, is how do you actually – pre-qualify them.
2: So our um, new de- business development team will call them when they call in to, to reserve their spot. Our business development team will call them back and go through a series of questions about, you know, they're not going to say how much money do you have, but in essence, like, you know, Hey, you know, what makes you want to come out? Have you been to one in the past? Um, you know, in, in terms of investable assets, would you say you have more than 500,000 and kind of that's, we, we said it's more, this is designed for someone who has 500,000 plus in assets. So Um, Our new business development, our business development team kind of handles that front end um, to get people to the seminar. So some people are not qualified, which is a hard conversation for them to have. It just, it's like, it doesn't make for what we're doing. It doesn't make sense for your, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do. And they do, I'm not going to do a good job of it because they're amazing at it. Uh, I'm not going to do it justice, but that's something that they're, they're, they do every day in terms of like qualifying people for the workshops and qualifying people for appointments. Um, we think it's important to pre-qualify them. And basically, they come to an event. We give them a dinner and do a presentation on the five areas of financial planning. And uh, that's, that's really the – it's a simple concept that's worked for years. For us, it's, you know, it's kind of gone down a little bit as well but it's still working so we're still going to do some some of it just not as much as we used to and
1: and and how long is the seminar again just like the whole program because whole- i'm like do you i mean do you do food do you do drinks is it just like come and here us talk for a little while and then people go on about their way like what's the whole program
2: it's about 45 minutes of the presentation and followed by a dinner and um the whole thing's probably about an hour, 15, hour and a half from beginning to, to end. But obviously, you know, our event coordinator has to show up, you know, hour early, get all the equipment lights, can't, you know, all everything, the easel, everything we're using for the presentation has to be set up. Um, and that's why I was saying it's a process that we're still doing it and it still works, but it is a lot of manpower. So we've cut it down. Like I said, it sounds like we're still doing two a month, which is probably a lot for most people, but again, some people are doing 20 or 30 of those a month. We, we, it's been a staple of ours for so long. It's hard to let go. We might, we might let it go. I'm sure we could let it go, but it's just kind of something that we've always done to get our name out there and get some, you know, prospects through the door and it's, it's worked well. So we've kind of continued to, to do it, but that's really the simple, it's simple. It's nothing fancy in terms of like anything special we're doing other than, you know, um, when they come, we feel like we have a special process once they come into the office. But seminar is pretty standard.
1: So I'm I'm struck that just you've been doing radio, but you have said it's declining. You've been doing seminars, but you said it's declining. You're doing television. Sounds like that's still holding pretty well, although we all seem to be a little collectively skeptical about what what television, or at least what commercial based television looks like in 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 a future where we're increasingly cutting the cord and and living in a in a no commercial Netflix kind of realm. So I'm just wondering, like, how how do you think about marketing for the firm as you're looking five to 10 years out? Or are you just planning like you'll cross that bridge when you get to it? (laughs) That's part of what we're doing is like, right now, we
2: still, even with radio and seminars going down, we still brought in about 40, 50 million from those sources last year. Um, But it used to be even better. You know what I mean? So I guess it, the 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 context of how you look at it is is we we're, we're remembering it how it was five years ago. It's slowly going down. It's not the it's not like it's a bad marketing avenue. It's just not what it was. So I don't want to like skew it to sound like I'm complaining about um, what we're getting. I just feel like in the future, what what seems to be picking up a lot more for us is the whole digital side, right? The quiz funnels, those type of um, marketing campaigns, which you can really scale out. You can almost go countrywide, nationwide. Um, you know, with, with the technology of Zooms. And I feel like there's a lot more availability um, just to do more in that space. And in in, I don't think we figured it out in the financial space as well as other um, people have probably on the, on, in terms of digital. But I think that's where, the, uh, to me, I see the wave of the future of that being more prevalent. And we'll probably allocate more dollars to that each year going forward.
1: And so then, as you add it up across all of this, you've got i mean how how like how much is a total marketing spend for you over the past year
2: uh, m- usually about eight hundred thousand dollars if you add everything all that together, it's about eight hundred thousand dollars of marketing spend
1: for which you had i think you said more than two hundred and fifty million of of new assets with the caveat that some of that's existing clients and 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 referrals. And, and referrals but if about a third of it was new, so you're at like 80 million of new assets, which I guess gets you right back to 80 million of new assets. at a proverbial one percent is like 800,000 of marketing spend, 800,000 of new revenue, two to one <laughs> on a two-year cycle.
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you get to the, exactly. It's funny how the math works, but you're exactly mm-hmm. right. And it's about out of our new clients last year in 2021, it was almost 50 percent were from referrals, 50 percent was from marketing, and then the rest of our business was from client
1: upsells. Okay. So talk to us for a few moments of just, we talked so much about the the leads and all the different funnels that you use, right? Just all the ways that basically the firm prospects, so the advisors don't have to prospect, they simply can answer the phone when a prospect calls in or wants to meet and is interested in moving forward. So how does this work from the the senior advisors who are ultimately responsible for selling and closing business? Like, how does this handoff happen? When do they get involved? And what do, what do they actually do at this point? Like, what's on their shoulders?
2: Yeah. So back in, you know, remember, you know, the, think of our business structure from 2003 to 2013, sales organization, no structure. I mean, we literally started in an Attic. Um, and then eventually when we started doing things to like, we hired a COO in 2014, we decommoditized and started systematizing things and scaling things. And once once we got to the point as a firm, we came to the realization we have to stop selling and we became, we had inflection points. We had a huge inflection point of, well, let's, let's in a sales process, let's not give the client 30 decision points. Let's bring it down to one after every meeting. So at the end of the first meeting, do we want to go to a second meeting? At the end of the second meeting, do we want to work together? Where before that, we were saying, you know, well, here's this stock. Look at this amazing stock portfolio. Look at these funds and bonds and annuities. And they have 30,000 decisions to make where we kind of change that. We changed our whole sales process and realized we can't keep doing what we're doing. Once we change that, the numbers, if, if you look at it from our production standpoint, year by year, started going through the roof. And I, I can, if you need those numbers, I can share them. But what, what happened is the three of us, Keith, Matt, and myself as a partners, were like, we can't take... If we keep doing this, we're going to be driving ourselves nuts with the amount of clients and reviews just and trying to run the business. So right. back in 2015, we hired our first senior advisor. That's kind of get once we had the processes in place and the fundamentals in place, then we hired our first senior advisor was Joe Anderson. And Joe, you know, he shadowed us, did all the things that you do when you when you come into a firm, learned the processes, learned how we run the firm, learned how we plan, learned every aspect. And then so now and from 2016, 17 to now, what Joe does is he he basically has He wakes up on a Monday and in his calendar, there's a series of appointments. It's going to be some brand new appointments from TV, radio, all the digital, all the funnels we're doing. And then it's going to be some, you know, some of his top client reviews, right? And so he goes into that meeting with his sole agenda of following the process, taking care. Obviously everything comes down to taking care, caring for that client. He's an amazing person, just like the, the rest of the team there, but his, You know what I mean? That's his, he doesn't have to worry about like this. When that client comes in, they've already heard us, seen us, whatever. Our team has, they've talked to someone on our team. They've got an appointment package in the mail that consists of a cool bunch of goodies and our, the SHP retirement roadmap book, you know, all these things about our firm. When they, the second the, the prospect walks into that front door, they're greeted. There's an iPad menu, there's cookies, baking and muffins. They're walked down. To the office with a tour of who are you know who we are as a family and team, into the conference room. Conference room has a TV with our entire team. It's like a it's a computer slash TV with our entire team showcased. So by the time that person that advisor walks in the door, they know all that's being done on the back end, and they know exactly who these people are, what their goals are, what their situation is, how much they've saved, and then that's their that's where their process starts. They have to start following the, it's a, it's a three to four meeting sales process from beginning to end. And that's where they come in. And then we, you know, we're obviously tracking closing ratios and, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, but that's really their responsibility is to onboard clients from the marketing that we're doing.
1: And can you describe for us a little bit more, just what is the sales process? Like what are your, what are your three to four meetings and like the the step they're supposed to take in after each one along the way?
2: Yeah, I think this is some, some valuable pieces along the way. So we have, we call the first meeting the connection visit. And this is a lot of this framing, by the way, is through Chris Smith from the Campfire Effect, who's amazing at taking a company and helping them frame what they do. So everyone's marching to the same beat. And in essence, you know, we, we look at the first meeting as a connection visit. And what we're, what we're trying to do is like for an example, the, the first step in a first meeting is, you know, you get to know each other. But everyone's so quick to jump into the meeting. With us, we we teach our process on the connection is take the guards off. Listen, Joe and Mary, this is. A, I know you're here. It's a nerve-wracking experience. This is your life savings. I just want to let you know how this meeting's going to go. You know, this is really for you to ask anything you want about myself. I'd love to learn more about what you guys are doing and what you're looking to do. And at the end of this meeting, the only thing we have to decide is, does it make sense to move to meeting two, right? Does it make sense to move further? Meaning, can we see do we see value we can provide? And on your end, do you see us as a firm that can provide that value? So we're trying to, even in the very beginning, we're setting the agenda and getting to that one decision point at the end, right? Is do we want to move together to a second meeting or do we want to part as friends? And so the first meeting is very just connecting, learning, what are their goals? What are they trying to do? A lot more, you know, really it's a lot more about this, like, how much do you have? Where do you, how much, you know, where do you want to go? It's like, what do you really care about? What do you want to do? All the important questions. Then assuming they, you know, as soon as that meeting's done, client, they send a recap email, which is huge to let them know exactly here's, we here's how clear we heard you, right? So that prospect gets a full email within 24 hours of exactly what just, you know, what took place and, and we make it personal about their family and dogs. And um, at the end of that meeting, then we have a second package that goes out. So then it's like, you know, an M&Ms, an article that we were in recently, just a little bit more about the company, about their process. And the second meeting is called the possibility session. And so, how we train the, our advisors, how everyone's trained now, when I we used to say at the second meeting, how do we get this client to jump on board, right? And so, um, in that second meeting for us, it's really like we're doing high level e money planning, we're doing high level cash flow planning, just tax planning, everything from a high level. But we're not, the goal is to not say, Here's, the port, here's where your portfolio is now. And here's where we're going to put you. Because then that client has 20 decisions to make. Well, do I sell this? Do I buy this? You know, And that's how we, mm-hmm. used to, we used to be so like, look how good this is. Look how good this portfolio has done. And it's like, it's awful. It's not how you should be running a second meeting. So for us, we start the second meeting with, hey, here's all the things. We're going to cover a high level 10,000 view of your situation. We're going to go through multiple areas. At the end of this meeting, we're not trying to decide what stock, bond, mutual fund, re, anything to buy. It's not about that. It's do we want to work together, right? Do we, you know, we think we can help you. Do you think we're a good fit for what you're looking for? That's the end goal. That's the decision, right? So there's no selling. It's like, we're going to show you high level how we can help you. Let's bring it to one decision point.
1: And what do you call this meeting again? A
2: possibility
1: session. Okay. Okay. It's the possibility session. Okay.
2: and in the first meeting, remember, just to go back for one second, so many other advisors are just trying to get to the second meeting. They want to get that client in again, so they have a chance to sell them, in my opinion, where, because I came from that world. That's what we used to do. Right. And, and with ours, given the you know the benefit of having the, the firm and, and stability, the clients can literally see the prospects that like, hey, we don't, if we're not a good fit, it's okay. So where everyone else is begging to get to a second, we're really trying to say, listen, if it's a good fit for us and for you, we, and we mean that we're not just saying it. We truly mean that. Like if, if it's someone's going to waste our time and so forth, we're not going to move to that second. And if they don't think we're a good fit, we want to get all that waste of time stuff out of the way and not just push them to a second meeting. Um, And so once at the end of the second meeting, the only thing we're doing is, is agreeing to work together. We're not deciding on anything, which leads to the third meeting, which is a Vision meeting and a vision meeting is really that's when you dive into like the specifics of how we're going to build out their plan, right? Because at that point the money has already been a catted, it's moved over. We use Fidelity as our custodian. Then the the vision meeting is the third meeting. That's when we go into the actual details and zoom in from 10,000 feet down in and say okay here's here's how we recommend your plan be built out that's you know that's general plan that's just general financial planning
1: so in your sales process and it sounds like after meeting number two like literally that's the do we want to work together if the answer is yes that's actually when you start queuing up paperwork that's when you start uh, doing transfers that's when they sign agreements correct all of it's happening after meeting number two so that it just flows straight into meeting number three which is Hey, we've talked about possibilities. We've decided we want to work together. Let's now start drilling down into what we're actually going to start doing.
2: Exactly. That meeting is just really picking, like building out risk tolerances, picking, you know, the actual allocation and so forth. And that's, you know, we have an internal investment committee that, you know, helps assist with that process. But that's just general. That's where the plan starts, right? So the the sales cycle is kind of over. Now we're into real investments, planning, and and then and so forth.
1: So for all those that were that were trained in a sales world of like you have to put together the proposal of what you're going to do and you know how your thing's gonna be better than what they've currently got. Uh because I'm I'm struck. Like I don't feel like you ever really get there in your in your sales process because you actually don't drill down to that level of proposal specifics until Meeting number three, which is after they've actually started to sign paperwork. So am am I am I, either am I missing something in that process, or is it just no? You don't actually go there, and, and you're 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 getting people on board just fine, anyways.
2: That was one of the big, the huge turning points in our career is realizing that you don't have to show every single fine detail. You want to show them how what you're trying to help them with. You're trying to correct maybe a cash flow problem maybe a risk problem, maybe a tax problem. But if you start going into the detail of how you're going to do that before they become a client, you're opening up Pandora's box. Like, well, what if I convert 201,000 to Roth instead of 199? And maybe I want, I don't know if I want to do that. And then you, you know what I mean? You open up all these possibilities where the, the the inflection point for us was taking all those decision points to one, right? So at the end of the first meeting, do we want to go to a second? At the end of the second, do we want to work together, right? So it's like, it's a huge, huge, huge relief to our team. and we say, this is a lot of work. We, we, you know, we deal with a lot of clients. We have, when we do planning, we do real, real planning. And I, and I really believe that. And I know the planning we do is extensive. That's a lot of our team is hired for that. And I will, they'll tell the prospect, like we, in all fairness, we, we have a really good outline of how we can help you, but we're not going to have our investment team and all these planning teams work on you and your situation. Until we know you're committed to us, right? it's just, it's just too much time for mm. us to waste to go down the road of like, I'm gonna look at 17 other advisors and then make a decision. And, I, and in fairness, that other firms can do that, and we have the ability to run our firm the way we want to, and we don't want to come off arrogant by any means, but it's like here's this is how we run our business and we don't want we, we, our clients are so important to us in the time that if we're taking time to, to bring on a new client, it has to be someone that's committed to us and our team, and then we'll put in all the effort for you now and going forward.
1: And out of curiosity, if, if I can ask in this framework, like how do advisors get compensated? Because sure. like they're they're not they're not prospecting in the classic sort of hunt and eat what you kill world, but they do actually have to have to close. You're training them in a sales process, but they have to they do have to close. So how does yep. compensation work?
2: Very simple. The senior advisors get thirty percent of everything. So whatever they bring in the doors to SHP ongoing 30% W2 empl- they're employees of ours but they get 30% of their anything that comes in that they're working on on their recurring book ongoing in So it's almost like, like I joked around, I always say like, this is, if I had that opportunity, a guaranteed 30% profit margin with no risk. And I walk into appointment after appointment with, you know, some of our advisors now have million dollar minimums. I'm like, what, how did we get to this point? It took me 15 years to get to that point. Um, So it's, yeah, that's, that's the comp model. It's pretty standard.
1: And is there some kind of, salary or base for them or or transition in, or even just a new advisor starts at zero and they're getting 30% of zero until they've got some clients. But since you've got a marketing process, it's not like it takes them seven to 10 years like some of us to get quote unquote full on clients. They get there pretty quickly because the marketing process, so they just get their percentage of revenue as revenue flows.
2: Yeah, that's an awesome question. Like Brian, one of our recent senior selling advisors, I would say, a lot of them come on in the service role. So they're doing ongoing, they're learning the ropes, going into meetings, servicing, planning, right? All the behind the scenes stuff, almost similar to like a diamond team's structure where eventually Brian made the move to become a selling senior advisor. So what brought, what happened there is he had a salary that as his advisory business slowly ramped up over six months to a year, the salary slowly went down. So he didn't go from like X amount to zero. You know, it it slowly slided down. So by the time he got his salary went to zero, his base off his book was actually at the same point he left off as a service advisor.
1: Okay. Because from a practical perspective, particularly if he's already on the team, he's got Planning service work to do all, already, so you know when when he gets his first client, it's not like he's sitting around toiling his thumbs the rest of the time. He's got a bunch of other service work to do that's already been part of his base salary. So just as he gets his own clients and can do less service work. He gets more of his percentage-based comp and less of his old salary.
2: You're exactly right. And, and real quick, uh, we also have like what's important in terms of having processes and procedures, which we didn't have in our first ten years. It's like the second. It's like two phases of SHP. It's it's 2003 to 13, and 2014 to now. And and so now when we have a full coaching portal, so it's it's cool for the mastermind group that we're into because people can pull those videos. So the coaching portal is also for our team where they can watch full training videos on our vision meetings. Uh, every single meeting is pre-recorded as like a, a, a prop, a fake meeting like me and my partner, Keith and I, we'll sit across from each other and do like a sample hypothetical um, connection meeting, right? And then we'll do a, so everything, all this is built out where they can just watch recording after recording and sit in meetings. So there's a, the training protocol for them is already established. It's not something that we have to just start from scratch. So. That, that's a huge benefit to have as a process where we have a place they can go. Even if, even if an advisor for five years is doing the wrong thing um, and they're getting off track, they might go back and watch a video and say, oh, I, I'm not doing this like I, I should be doing this. You know, it just helps them stay on track for, for what they're supposed to be doing during that process.
1: So as you look back on this, what's, what surprised you the most about the path of building your own advisory business?
2: I'd say this: the, the one area is around the culture. You know, I I did not understand how internal culture would matter externally to people on the outside. And looking at it, saying that now sounds ridiculous, but I didn't realize like in 2014, when we we let go of a few employees who were kind of just here for the paycheck, good people, but here for the paycheck, hired Michelle, who's our COO and really built from there and just hired, you know, as much as we could, A plus talent, you know, people who truly cared for each other and cared for our clients, you know took, did you know, doing charity trips internally. We have, you know, teams of seven. We have five or six teams of seven people who we organize every year and every quarter. They go out and do their charity groups, right? We do our, we do um, different missions and outreach in our community and just building that camaraderie with our team and, you know, yoga and, you know, we do a, if we hit our goal, we do a summer outing. If we hit a stretch goal, we go to, we're going to Aruba in next month as a, as a team, which is, I might, I might be going bankrupt soon with that bill, but, um, you know, it's like a, it's, it's, it's the culture really truly feeds to the clients and the clients can buy into that. And it does make a difference where my own, my limiting beliefs back in the day were I don't, what does it matter? What happens internally? Clients just want a good plan. That's the furthest thing from the truth. So the culture and people are so, so important. Um, And then, you know, just another thing I learned is just, you know, one of the major things I've learned along the way, whether it's any points of business, and this is something my dad taught me years ago, is just really paying attention to like, if you pay attention to the small things in life, then the bigger things work themselves out. And that you can literally apply that to sports of like the fundamentals of football, like, you know, at the end of the day, when if Brady throws a pass to Edelman down the seam, it looks pretty. There was so many details that had to be worked out with the footwork of the line and the fundamentals and the steps, right? And everyone just sees the final throw that Brady made, but there's so much behind the scenes. So in, in, in business, there's a lot of details that have to be followed. There's no shortcuts. And even with our clients, it's like if we can take care of all the little details of your risk. And if we can make sure we're appropriately doing Roth conversions, if it makes sense up to the right dollar amount and tax harvesting and taking care of all these little details, then the bigger things will work themselves out. And so those those are two huge lessons around um, just life and just business building is is the culture and just not missing the small details along
1: the way. So what was the low point for you on this journey?
2: <sighs> there's, been a, there's been a few. I mean, we can go back to you know, Banker's Life, you know, Keith and I knocking on someone's door because they sent the lead in six years before we got there and we didn't have a phone number for them. <laughs> and, you know, Keith got the uh, police called on him because he's 6'5 and 250 and pretty intimidating. <laughs> um, <laughs> but a true low, I would say that's, in, that's back in the day. But a, a, a low point for us was around 2015, 16, when we, where, we, where we had literally, fit, we kind of thought we, we got some things figured out on the business side and on the sales cycle and on the sales side. But we had done so much business between just the three of us that at the end of that year, I was talking to our good friend, Brad, and um, actually Sean Sean from Triad Partners. And I was like, you know, we we literally had our, our goal the next year, because we didn't have the right team underneath us, because we didn't have the, enough advisors taking on appointments, we made our goal to do less. We literally made our goal to do less. And that was like a pretty, almost depressing point because our team was excited, but it's like Keith Matt and I literally can't do this again. Like I don't want to work that hard to do that much business. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yep. So what turned this around for you when you're like hitting hitting this wall of 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 growth?
2: Uh it, it was really coming to the realization that it's it can't be just about us, right? This can be something that we can build and be beyond us and we we can't do it all ourselves, right? We just can't do it on ourselves. It's too much work and it's going to we're going to strive to burn ourselves out if we're working that hard to take on that many clients with just the three of us. And so the marketing was doing amazing. You don't want to turn things off that are working well, but it's like we almost at the end of that time period, we were like thinking about reducing our marketing. So we have all these people that want to sit down with us and we can't physically do it. And we have three advisors because it was just three of us at that point, bringing on clients, getting to the point of almost feeling like they were burnt out. And that was the you know, the furthest thing we wanted to, to do. And so that, how we, the transition from that point over the next several years is something that um, we're super happy about because my, you know, my free time is so much different than what it was before. Um, and just seeing like the difference that the difference makes. So just be in our mastermind group, my friend, Anthony, I talked about earlier, one of my good friends in Chicago, just seeing some of the lessons that we, and the, the mistakes we made along the way, he was in that same point. In the last year, he went from like eighty something million of new business in twenty twenty to one hundred and seventy million of new business, and he spent ten more weeks with his family, his sons, his wife. He, his, it was all about the freedom. So the business is great. Like the numbers, you know, are amazing when you hear of like all the stories on your podcast and all the stories of people that I talk to. The numbers are amazing, but if you're running. It, it, you know, 100 miles an hour on a hamster wheel and you're not happy, then we all know so many stories. It's just not worth right. it. And so the, the it's running the right business where you can create freedom and time to do the things that are important to you, but also take care of the clients and the and the folks in yeah. your team. And and it's just the, the whole ripple effect of the difference that the difference makes is what I love looking at. But I love like the internally seeing our team like build families and buy houses. I love our clients thriving. I love seeing people in our mastermind group spending more time with their family and and knowing that their process is better and they're doing more planning for their clients. So that it's all these ripple effects that I truly believe are making a difference in where many years ago I think I had limiting beliefs like, yeah, I'm just another advisor doing my thing. Now my Keith, myself and Matt, Michelle Leader, the leaders here truly believe is that we're leaders, right? And that, you know, there's a lot more we can learn. There's a lot more to go, but we feel like we're making a difference across many platforms.
1: So what else do you know now that like you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago as you were building?
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. I know you've, you, I've heard you ask that many times and I think it's, it's really just like not, I, I'd say the confidence is is what matters, right? Being confident, being a leader in that mindset I just talked about. Like I was, back in the day, I had limiting beliefs. Like, well, even though I felt like I, we did a good job, I was like, well, we're too young. No one wants to work with us. So there's people a lot smarter than us. And it comes across too on how you show up, show, show, to show up to your team, to show up to prospects and clients. And I think what I would love, if I could tell my, you know, myself many years ago just to show up with more confidence that, you know, you are a leader. You can... Thrive. You you can help these people. You know, you you might be the best person for them, and you're almost not even showing them because you're you're almost afraid that you don't believe you. We didn't believe in ourselves. So I didn't believe in myself. You know, I just didn't believe in myself. I was just another advisor trying to make it. You know, didn't think I did. Made it, didn't think I had the amount of impact that we do as advisors. And I think that's something people don't take as seriously. If you're if you're if you're being lazy, then yeah, you don't. Maybe that's not the case, but if you're truly pouring your heart and life into this business to truly impact and see the families that you're impacting right along the way, that's that's a that's such a huge benefit to that person to that family that you're working with. I mean, I dealt with two deaths last week for clients losing their spouses, and to just show up for them during those times, I wish I was I wish I had the confidence that I have now that I had when I was, you know, when I was 25, I wish I had more confidence and leadership ability and had believed in myself more.
1: So what what other advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming into business?
2: I would say just be authentic. Um, people can read through, like, for instance, you've, um, my, you know, I always joke around, Keith and I good people. My partner, Matt's 10 times smarter than us. Right. And I used to try to like. I grew up in the trades. My dad was a plasterer. My mom was a nurse. I was. I didn't grow up in a business background. Keith's father was a gran- cranberry grower, and so, you know, we we. I would almost turn on when I first started in like 20 years ago. I'd be like, Hey, how you doing? This is Derek. You know, how you doing, sir? Like, it's just almost this this fake personality, to try to be more professional. Where now, where I think if you be yourselves. And, and you're authentic, people would rather see that, right? People don't, don't want the fake version of you that sounds more polished. I'm, I mean, I'm sit, I sit down and give my clients a hard time. I have a Boston accent sometimes. Like it's, you don't have to be perfect and, and 100% polished to be in this business because the people are buying, they want you, they want the authentic you. So my, I would say be authentic. People can read through that. Don't pressure yourself to bring on clients. I would say if your goal is to serve that person, the business will come. Don't be so pressured to bring on that client. I know it's hard to; it's easier said than done because I've been there. You know, when you have no money and you're just trying to bring on anyone that you can. But um, if you if you really if your goal is to serve them and not necessarily yourself, the business will follow.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes always just the word success means different things to different people. And so as you as you've helped build this wonderfully successful billion dollar advisory firm and and still lots of room for growth from here you've this, this great trajectory for growth the business is doing well how do you define success for yourself at this point
2: yeah that's that's a very amazing question you know being a christian I, faith is a huge part of what i do and and i talked about my my dad earlier i was lucky to have amazing parents and um and i have an amazing wife and two young boys 10 and 13 and i think Uh, The best way I can put it is I always saw my dad doing every single thing he could to care about others and go out of his way and and put others first. And I was in Nashville recently with with our good friend Brad and and Sean, and basically they had Tim Tebow there. And I I don't know if you've heard him speak before, but we got to meet with him for a few hours and uh, even talk to him for a while afterwards. And he made an important um, distinction that I thought was really key that always defined Everything I thought about, but I just didn't know how to get it in a sentence. And he said, "Success is really about you, like me, like as a person. That's success. But significance, right? Significance is pouring into others. And so I, I don't, I fail every day, right? I'm a, I'm a failed person. I, I, I make mistakes, um, but I really try to come into the." into this thought process with like pouring into our team, pouring into my my clients, pouring into my my family, my wife, my boys, right? And just in and that's I think the difference, you know, anyone success is great, right? Everyone get all the accolades, sit on the stage, look at me, look at this company we built, even here at SHP, right? That that means nothing. If it's okay to have success, but if you're not if you don't have significance, then success doesn't matter if you're not pouring into others. So that's how I define success.
1: I love that. I love that framing. Just success is really about you. Significance is pouring into others.
2: Exactly. I love it.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Derek, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Awesome. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And
1: keep up the good work, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?